find an increasing challenge, whether or not we believed in accelerated aging or just that we have an older patient population, uh, Christine Ritchie is going to help guide us uh, through that discussion. Uh, Christine is a professor of medicine in the geriatrics group at uh, UC San Francisco. Uh, we stole her from uh, UAB, uh, and it's kind of fun in terms of kind of our faculty that um, uh, she is Jessica's uh, mentor as well because they both work together there. So, welcome. Yes, indeed. This is my first IAS uh, presentation. It's really such a pleasure to be with you. And uh, my only sadness is that I am the one thing preventing you from lunch. So um, hopefully we can just sort of take a step back. You've learned a lot of really interesting and important uh, new findings that relate to both uh, Hep C and HIV. And um, what I'd like to do is back up just a little bit and sort of look at our sort of big picture that you're probably facing and experiencing in your practices that relates uh, to HIV and aging. So I uh, am an author for UpToDate, but otherwise have no relevant uh, issues to disclose. What I want to do today is talk with you just briefly about the epidemiology of um, aging and HIV in the US, talk about the whole issue of multimorbidity and uh, complexity, and maybe a few strategies for you to consider as you try to manage people who have increasingly uh, num increasing numbers of multiple co-occurring conditions that are not actually related to um, HIV disease, because that's a whole new challenge that people are now experiencing. So here's our uh, practice question, and oh dear, it started. <laughs> okay, so compared to older adults without HIV, in older adults with HIV, one, fragility factors are no more common than among older adults without HIV. Depression is more common, two. Three, social isolation is less common. And then four, non-HIV-assisted malignancies are less common. So have at it. Very good. All right. And we'll talk more about um, the issue of depression in, in um, older adults and in HIV in, in just a little bit. So um, aging is, is you know, a, a good issue that we're having to deal with uh, that. But I'll talk about some, some um, data about that that we know, some of the implications, what this feels like for providers based on a little bit of data that's coming out now, uh, what, this feel, what may, this may feel like um, from patients' perspectives, and then our opportunity to really provide uh, person-centered care. So another question for you, by 2015, which is only two years from now, what percentage of HIV individuals in the US will be over the age of 50? Great music. Okay, so 35% say, I mean, excuse me, 50% say 35%, 37% say 50, and 11% say 65. So everybody knows it's, it's more than 15%. And indeed, um, by 2015, over 50% of all individuals in the U.S. with HIV um, will be over the age of 50. And in addition to that, over half of people who are over the age of 50 will have clinical events and deaths that are not related to their underlying HIV diagnosis. 
Um, so this is really both wonderful and then I think increasingly challenging for uh, all of us and for HIV survivors especially. 16.5% um, of incident infections in the U.S. in 2010 occurred in individuals. The good news about this is that this number is actually going down just a little bit. Uh, in 2007-2008, it was actually 20%, so some drop there. And HIV-associated non-AIDS conditions um, accounted for two-thirds of deaths. One other issue that we do see and that you probably are aware of, and this is not the only issue, is that CD4 lymphocyte response um, to combination ART does also appear to be blunted in older age. And there's, if you haven't had a chance to see it, there's actually a very nice review by um, Meredith Green, a colleague of mine at, at UC San Francisco, on um, some of the implications of aging and HIV um, on practice. So uh, this is a, a um, sort of breakdown of the issues that we see with aging in HIV that was nicely put out by Amy Justice and her team, which basically shows sort of the common trio, that's of course not always the case for everybody, but of HIV, viral hepatitis, and substance abuse. And then what happens when you combine that with aging, where you do see immune senescence as a result of aging alone. Um, you see some of the increasingly interesting implications of our microbiome and my, micro, um, microbial translocation in the gut, chronic inflammation, another phenomenon uh, that we see associated with aging, both HIV and non-HIV treatment toxicity, um, oxidative stress, and then all these associated conditions. And when you combine that, when you combine that with IDHIV disease, you see this, but you just see it um, amplified, which is this incremental depletion of organ system reserves. Uh, this sort of lack or decreased ability to sort of respond to some sort of insult or a decreased resilience. And actually, we were talking about this at the faculty meeting last night, and uh, Paul Volverding said, you know, a great picture of that is the picture that all of us, um, or many of us might have seen from the Boston Marathon explosion event where you may have recalled if you saw the video where things were sort of spinning out of control, people running off, um, except for this one gentleman, Bill Ifrick, who is a 78-year-old, who's actually run a number of um, Boston marathons, who said, it just knocked me off my feet. Uh, my legs turned to noodles. And that's what we see with aging. Um, and some, you know, we see it earlier than others, and although there's no indication that Bill Ifrick um, has HIV, nevertheless, it's just a, I think it's a metaphor, a symbol of what happens with aging, and it seems to be a particularly relevant issue if you also have um, HIV disease. So we'll talk about the implications of aging and HIV on screening briefly, multimorbidity, and then um, geriatric syndromes, which is a whole new um, arena that actually all primary care providers are now having to struggle with just not, had not been as much of an issue now, but with our population aging at this incredible rate, where now the fastest growing population in the United States is over the age of 85, um, and is growing by more than 200%, and everyone else coming down the pike um, is growing as well, then we can expect to see more and more of these syndromes that heretofore we just didn't have to worry about quite as so from the standpoint of screening, um, here's another question for you. According to the American Geriatric Society and IAS US, USA, routine opt-out screening should be offered to, one, all patients age 13 through 64 and all pregnant women, two, all patients regardless of age with a separate consent, 
and three, all patients regardless of age without a separate consent. Okay, so some a, a little bit of a divergence here, and actually probably with some uh, good reason because there has been some lack of clarity about what to do with screening, especially with older adults. Um, the uh, American Preventive Task Force actually provides no guidelines for screening, um, HIV screening in older adults, and the CDC uh, recommends uh, opt-out screening up to age 64. But in a recent consensus conference that included uh, the American Academy of HIV Medicine, the American Geriatric Society, the AIDS Community Research Initiative, there was really a strong feeling that um, routine opt-out screening should be recommended regardless of age and that there should be no separate informed consent. Why? Because of a couple things. One is that there's been a number of studies that show that screening to age 75 is cost-effective, especially when they're relatively um, or where the prevalences of 0.1% are higher. And a lot of the symptoms that are attributed to aging can also be symptoms um, that are relevant in HIV. So anemia, fatigue, weight loss, a lot of those people attribute those to aging. And so they will disregard them. And that could be um, actually an unfortunate byproduct of not engaging in regular screening. Now, what about HIV and multimorbidity? So interestingly, we're beginning to really appreciate the importance of multiple chronic co-occurring conditions across uh, the US population, not actually only in just the 65 and above group, but even in the 45 to 65 group, probably related to the um, ongoing epidemic of obesity. But with the 65 and above group, what we're seeing is that um, it, at least 80% of all people over the age of 65 are dealing with two or more conditions. The interesting thing is those same conditions and that same comparison has not been done with the HIV population. So this is actually a study um, out of Switzerland that looked at multimorbidity, but their comorbid conditions actually are very different than the usual comorbid conditions that are looked at in the United States with the Charleston or some other um, indicator. But what they showed what, um, was actually not that different than what we see but perhaps slightly higher rates of comorbid conditions on, among those with HIV. And for those of you who provide care, this probably comes as no surprise. Here are some of the common comorbid conditions that we see associated with aging and with HIV. So increased risk of cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, liver disease, CNS, bone disease. Todd Brown will be talking about that this afternoon and then non-age-associated malignancies. And those rates appear to be higher among older adults who have um, HIV. Now, why is that important? Well, we know from actually a number of studies that multimorbidity is associated with all sorts of unfortunate outcomes, including functional decline, increased healthcare utilization, increased hospitalization, decreased quality of life, increased depression. So, Multimorbidity then becomes, in and of itself, an issue that we have to be attuned to because of its negative impact on um, people who are experiencing it. There have been, again, not a lot of studies looking at HIV um, and, and many what are considered geriatric outcomes. This was actually um, a cross-sectional study that looked at uh, the relationship between HIV-positive and HIV-negative individuals 
um, among a VA cohort showing that when you looked, especially among the older um, populations of this particular cohort, that there was a reduced reduction in function in the um, older adults with HIV versus those who didn't. But again, not dramatic, but this is cross-sectional data. When you look at cognitive status, what you see is also this um, seemed to be sort of amplification of cognitive decline among those individuals with HIV versus those who do not have HIV. What's interesting, though, is that in the studies that have looked at actually, neuro, you know, done very careful neuropsychological testing, what we're not, we're not actually seeing any specific pattern of differences. So there's this sort of general um, acceleration in cognitive decline, but not a particular pattern that relates to executive, um, executive function or um, other kinds of uh, cognitive function. And then with respect to HIV and frailty, um, which is in some respects a sort of a sister to function, we're seeing a really marked increase among um, individuals with, with HIV um, and their poor outcomes if they have a frailty-related phenotype. So what is the frailty-related phenotype? It's essentially when someone has a decrease in muscle mass, a decrease in energy, decrease in physical activity, decrease in gait speed, and a decrease in weight. So there's this sort of phenotype that looks like that. You've probably seen them um, in your practice. And those individuals, when you compare them to HIV-infected individuals who don't have that phenotype, have much higher mortality rates and um, much um, higher risk for a number of untoward outcomes. And Todd, I think, will be speaking about that as well. With respect to fragility fractures, this, to me, is a remarkable study that came out this past year looking at um, a very large cohort of HIV-infected. And um, as a Spanish cohort that looked at, at HIV-infected and HIV-uninfected um, individuals and at fracture rates. And what they saw was that for those individuals who had um, HIV, the age and gender-adjusted hazard ratios for both hip, for hip fractures was uh, 6.2 and for major fractures was 2.7. So a three-fold increase in major fractures for HIV-infected uh, individuals versus those who were not HIV-infected. And that this, this relationship was amplified um, with uh, among those who are older. So what this sort of wraps up then to be is a, a sort of complex situation for providers and sometimes can feel just pretty much overwhelming. Uh, you know, this is um, a, a definition by uh, a group of actually MIT um, engineers who described complexity as a system with numerous components, interconnections, interactions, and interdependence that are difficult to describe, understand, predict, and I would bold, manage, design, or change. And that's, I think, how many of us feel when we're trying to provide good care for these um, individuals. Now, um, and they also did a funny thing where they actually sort of provided some examples of complex systems. And uh, since they were at MIT, they came up with a lot of Boston examples. But um, one of the things that I thought was funny is that down at the very bottom, they have Homo sapiens as an example of a complex system and the human brain. And I think probably most of us would say, yeah, there are homo sapiens and they're homo sapiens in terms of sort of what they feel like in terms of complexity. Richard Grant actually asked physicians um, in, in the, the um, Harvard Health Partners practice what they considered to be you know, the complex patient. And they said, anybody who has a chronic serious illness, 
multimorbidity, challenging issues with respect to medical decision making, um, you know, potential for fragmentation of care, uh, psychiatric disorders, and maybe some personal characteristics and socioeconomic issues would be considered a complex patient. Does that sound like your patient? Yeah, so probably most of the patients that you provide care for fall into this category of complexity. And when you add aging and you add multimorbidity to that, it can feel um, very challenging to know how to manage it. This was actually a, um, a paper on complexity that was um, put together by some colleagues of mine here now at the University of Massachusetts, where they were just trying to sort of characterize for, for those of us practicing um, in this situation what some of the dimensions are for complexity that make it hard to manage. It's not just the biology. Now, in, in HIV disease, the biology is quite complex, and management of HIV disease alone is complex, but you add substance abuse disorders, you add hep C, you add cardiovascular disease, you add social isolation, it just it, um, amplifies all that. And they came up with this really interesting perspective on vectors of complexity, where you could have two people with the same biological process, and if they have actually different um, other characteristics, it can totally change one's perspective of them in terms of their um, sense of complexity. So if you think about, for, let's talk about, for example, scenario one. Um, scenario one is a 60-year-old person with HIV who is um, in hypertension, just discharged from the hospital with an MI, um, adherent on their antiretrovirals, um, has been given medicines now to control his blood pressure and his lipids and his aspirin, and advised to quit smoking. He was also diagnosed with diabetes. Um, he lives in a stable neighborhood, um, has stable employment, and has a supportive partner. That's scenario one. Scenario two, a uh, 60-year-old with HIV hypertension, discharged from the hospital with MI, adherent on um, antiretroviral, uh, was given medicines to control his blood pressure, lipids, advised to quit smoking, diagnosed with diabetes, lives in an impoverished, under-resourced neighborhood um, with a sick partner who requires um, his care unstable employment. I mean, those two things totally change the vectors, don't they? So even though the biology is the same, it's all these other determinants that really contribute and they end up really mattering when you try to think about how to care for individuals who are complex. Now, from the patient's perspective, the patient would say, well, that's nice for you to say that I'm a complex patient, but let me tell you what it means for me. What it means for me is that I have to manage a lot of medications, I have high symptom burden, um, I have um, a lot of illness-related burden um, in terms of sort of its impact on my feelings of self-worth. Um, keep in mind what it means for me. So I think as providers, our challenge is to walk this tightrope of um, addressing the complexity we face and experience as providers, but also being attuned to what that feels like for um, our patients. And I call it sort of the iceberg. Um, of illness burden, where there, um, we see sort of the HIV and morbidity piece, um, what the person is experiencing is having to manage not only their antiretroviral therapy, but their therapy for their heart failure and for their hyperlipidemia and for their hypertension and their diabetes, um, perhaps for their depression and the physical symptoms that rela relate to that. And all that bundled up ends up being this huge amount of illness burden that often is not communicated to us as providers. So symptom burden, I do want to highlight, and you heard from Jessica um, 
this morning about uh, pain in particular, uh, but there are many other symptoms that are common among um, older adults with HIV, um, depression in particular being very, uh, um, having a very high prevalence, much higher than actually the average older adult population that also has a relatively high prevalence of depression. And so really paying attention to what's going on with symptoms and managing them aggressively is um, relevant. And then in addition to that, recognizing that symptoms can often feed in themselves. So one condition can contribute to two symptoms, or you could have multiple conditions contributing to sort of what I call a symptom cascade. And being aware of especially our treatments and their impact on symptoms uh, can be very important to mitigating against um, undue symptom burden. Now, with respect to social life relation, one of the key features of um, HIV and aging that actually differentiates it, in, or at least it makes it a little bit more distinct than um, sort of the average aging population is that in large studies where this has been evaluated, it does appear that older adults with HIV are more likely to be socially isolated than, um, than other older adults. And other, other, other older adults are also likely to be socially isolated, but not to the same degree. Um, older minorities had smaller social networks and were at higher risk for isolation. And older women with HIV were more likely to be both um, at financial risk and um, socially isolated. So treatment burden. Um, here again, I think keeping in mind that when we put people on, on um, a number of different medications and certainly having one pill for um, antiretroviral therapy is, is wonderful, but you, in heart failure and in diabetes and in hypertension, we haven't been quite as good about actually you know, lumping all, all, all people's pills together. And so people can come with just a huge array very quickly of 10 to 15 medications that contribute to um, significant uh, stress for patients and for their caregivers. So keeping in mind what treatment complexity looks like, not only for their HIV meds, but for their non-HIV meds, be very important for mitigating against uh, treatment burden and also increasing likelihood for adherence and decreased adverse effects. It's also important to keep in mind this whole issue with cognition and literacy. Now, you guys are probably pretty clued into health literacy, but uh, what my observation has been is that cognition tends to be under uh, addressed as an issue that may be uh, um, interfering with adherence. Most people who are beginning to develop cognitive impairment actually are very good at um, engaging in uh, sort of the appropriate social responses so that their cognitive impairment may be actually very um, uh, difficult to notice unless you engage in a very clear and specific assessment of their cognition. So you can ask people, you know, what did they have to eat yesterday? What did they do? And people can come up with what seem to be very appropriate answers and yet uh, they have nothing to do with actually what happened. They're just very good with um, making sure that they're answering those questions appropriately. So really actually evaluating cognition, if you have any, any indication that something might be going on there becomes very important, especially from the standpoint of um, treatment complexity and addressing adherence. So when you have to add all this together, then how do you really manage this clinical care maze? Uh, David Vance put together this picture, which may be actually difficult for those of you in the, the back to see, but it's sort of this four-circle uh, um, approach, which includes both prevention, 
paying attention to, to mitigating against disease and disability, um, active engagement, really encouraging people to engage in um, their community and in, in things that are important to them, um, addressing issues that relate to spirituality, existential purpose, and then maximizing cognitive and physical functioning. And all of those really sort of are wrapped up together with the things that we've been talking about, um, addressing issues that relate to multimorbidity, addressing unhealthy lifestyle choices, really paying attention to medication side effects, which is a big thing that we end up doing in geriatrics, and then paying attention to other things that may be contributing to um, cognitive or functional decline. The um, American Geriatric Society last year actually uh, put together a consensus conference on how to manage multiple co-occurring conditions because this is becoming such a challenging issue for many healthcare providers. And uh, when you have so many different conditions to manage, it's hard to know sort of where to start and, and how to actually think about what might be the important issues to consider. And they came up with essentially um, the following guidelines. First is to think about prognosis. So you already heard that over half of um, the clinical events and mortality that are beginning to occur in, in um, older adults with HIV or non-HIV related, what that means then is you have to be increasingly informed from by prognostication tools that are not actually HIV specific. And they're a whole array and it can be actually pretty confusing, but one that I would recommend to you is eprognosis.org, which is a um, online prognostication tool that looks, the ones I think that are particularly relevant to uh, um, older adults with HIV relate to the prognostication tools that look at functional status, um, and then other tools that are specific to heart failure, COPD, dementia, et cetera. Those can be very helpful, especially when you're trying to make decisions about screening or about the benefit, cost-benefit ratio of any particular kind of intervention. The next is to pay attention to these social stressors that are caused by um, complexity and multimorbidity and thinking about creative ways to address those, or at least to even bring them to light. James Tulsky at, um, at Duke University talks about how many times a lot of our patients um, have social stressors that they'll note and we actually don't necessarily acknowledge. And so really even giving people the opportunity to um, give voice to their social stressors and acknowledging that with an empathic response has been shown to have um, therapeutic benefit. And then paying attention to symptom and treatment burden, and I really like to emphasize the importance of attending to treatment burden. If you're thinking about their um, treatment for their HIV or for their hep C, that's one piece of the puzzle, but really making sure that you're getting the entire brown bag of their medications, really looking at everything that people are taking, really getting a sense of what they think are the relevant issues with respect to their um, treatment and what's really causing them distress around their treatment uh, becomes very important. Identifying geriatric syndrome, so really paying attention to cognition, asking about functional status. You know, we still live in an era of the ICD-9, which doesn't really address function. Um, and unlike everywhere else in the country, I mean, in the world where um, the use of ICD-10 actually addresses functional status, and functional status we actually know is a better predictor of poor outcomes even than any particular comorbid condition. Nevertheless, we can individually pay attention to function with just simple questions like, compared to when I saw you last, are you able to do more or less than you were then? What are the sort of things that you're having difficulty with 
attending to now? Are you still able to do um, and get out in the same way that you were in the past? Very simple questions, but especially anchoring it with some time in the past to get a sense of what the change has been. And then preference alignment. So when people begin having a bunch of different comorbid conditions, they start actually having to make decisions that are um, fairly significant related to cost-benefit uh, decisions about whether or not to focus more on one treatment or another, because many times the treatment of one condition can exacerbate actually um, the management of another. And so really understanding what's important to your patient with respect to their uh, conditions with respect to their treatments becomes relevant when trying to make sure that the recommendations you're making are in line with people's um, goals for care. And then the whole idea of having risk-ratified treatment recommendations becomes very relevant when you're thinking about someone who has multiple co-occurring conditions in a complex healthcare framework to make sure that whatever the treatment is that you've recommended to them actually is in line with their level of risk for that particular outcome. I think this is particularly true when we think about things related to fractures, for example, and Dr. Brown will be talking about that more uh, this afternoon. So to sum up then, um, HIV and aging brings new challenges and opportunities. I think these are really, it's, it's wonderful that we're actually have, being able to have this conversation about HIV and aging, but it does, I think change our paradigm. I think it actually forces us to think about how to engage in um, very productive co-management and coordination of care in a way that we never had to in the past. It's requiring us to think much more about personalized care through predicting, uh, predictive modeling approaches. And frankly, we have, we're, we're desperately needing the evidence base to catch up with us so that we can actually do this in a much more data-driven way. Um, we have to figure out strategies for managing both uncertainty from the standpoint of prognostication, but also uh, symptom illness and burden, and then paying always attention to preferences and preference alignment when we're providing care. So we'll finish up with uh, the question that we started with uh, and uh, let you try at it again. Great job. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And I'm happy to answer any questions. I nailed the time to, like, to a second. Um, great. Uh, bring up your questions. Um, a lot of the providers, so the, at least the physician providers are predominantly ID in this mm -hmm. room. Um, maybe talk about the challenges of an HIV-specific practice versus a practice where you're more likely to have generalist family docs and others, geriatricians who might, I would argue, might be better able to, to take care of some of these issues. Right. So. We, we have a lot of conversations about this, both around HIV and, and actually cancer, because cancer, like HIV, has become a chronic condition, advanced cancer. And what we're seeing then is that it's very important for people to be managed by sophisticated HIV providers or sophisticated oncologists, but then there also needs to be some sense of what the handoff looks like 
from the standpoint of co-management. So that if you have taken on the role of primary care provider, recognizing what your limitations are and figuring out how you're going to get the kind of support that you need, or if you're not actually sort of seeing yourself as their primary care provider, being very explicit about who's managing what. And um, I think this whole concept of co-management is one that uh, is very, very different than sort of what I, you know, was trained in, in medical school where if you were the primary care provider or if you were sort of the main provider, you were supposed to know everything. But it's really the idea that you link with people who have um, skills in areas where you either don't have the um, time or uh, the resources to have those skills and make sure that everybody knows who's doing what and how you're going to communicate with each other. I think it's strategically an error that we have the box lunch announcement up on the screen. I should stress to say that the box lunch is under lock and key until we finish the, uh, the session. So <laughs> no, no point getting up now. Um, I like it when the questions that I kind of draft fill the gaps are the same ones that the audience asks. Um, so, we, we know, I think, that there is a growing problem of cognitive impairment um, for whatever reason in our patients, um, but we're all in busy practices. Thoughts about how do we do a reasonable yet brief assessment of cognition in our patients? Yeah, so this is actually, again, an issue that's um, sort of a, a moving target in terms of what's been recommended. Uh, back in the day, we used to recommend that everybody do something called the mini-mental state exam, the MMSE, which, because it's proprietary, has actually sort of fallen off the map because to do it um, legally now, you actually have to pay something like, you know, a dollar per, per assessment. So people are not using the MMSE anymore. But there are a number of brief screeners, um, the mini-cog, the MOCA, um, the slums, that can be used by somebody in your practice um, and that can be done, accomplished in less than five minutes. And so I would say that, you know, it's increasingly relevant to consider integrating those screeners into your practice. And then if they screen positive, to then refer them to, to others to do, um, or refer them for neuropsychological testing, which I find to be extremely useful, especially if, if the presentation, which I think in most people who are HIV infected, would be slightly different than what you would see in sort of traditional Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's, as you know, is now taking on epidemic proportions in the United States. And you're going to be seeing more and more of it, uh, both in the 50 to 60 age group, but increasingly as people get into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So uh, a question, another one that I really loved, that, um, you know, those of us that have been around a long time remember in the early years of the epidemic when having advanced directives was absolutely essential because our patients were dying uh, so quickly. And, now it's maybe coming back. You would comment on advanced directives as, a, as we deal with a patient population that might not be dying of their AIDS directly, but is aging? You were talking yeah, about yeah. So, 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 so my initial response is that uh, every one of us in this room should have an advanced directive with ex at least somebody who you want to make decisions for you if you get hit by a car, you know, walking out of the hotel. Um, so. Um, it's always, I think, a good idea to be um, having conversations with folks about um, who they want to serve as their healthcare proxy if they are, for whatever reason, not able to make decisions on their own. Um, but it is, it can be useful if there's someone experiences any kind of sentinel event to say, gosh, you know, you just had this experience where you were in the hospital 
Um, have you ever thought about sort of the things that were important to you um, about your illness or about sort of what under what circumstances you would or would not want certain kinds of treatment and to start really getting that conversation going. Most of us who, uh, who are um, in the field of geriatrics and palliative care really want to emphasize how important it is for people to recognize that advanced directives are dynamic um, experiences and dynamic documents. They're not static. I think the reason a lot of people do not like to engage in advanced care planning is they feel like they're making a commitment to a particular decision. That's really not the point. The point of advanced care planning is to actually help people and the people that they love understand what's important to them about treatment so that they can make some informed choices. And I've been hearing more about different forms. I think one's called POST. So POST. Okay, so we can talk briefly about POST. POST is actually not an advanced directive. It is actually or a way of communicating what people have said are important to them about their um, about life-sustaining treatments across settings of care. POLS stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, in some states, it's called MOLST, Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And really, it's the, the whole idea is if someone has been very clear about certain kinds of treatments they do or do not want, that that information is communicated from setting to setting. Because right now, unfortunately, uh, people in the nursing home will have been very clear about what kind of treatments they don't want. They get sent to the hospital, and none of that is understood or known. And so the point of most and pulse, and this is being rolled out in many states and been shown to actually be important in reduce or increasing the likelihood that people will get the treatment that they want, um, is that it allows for better communication across settings of care. So a question that's not maybe directly related to, to your uh, topic, but one that I'm sure you've thought of, um, and you, you mentioned it at least in passing, comment about the uh, recommendations, the various recommendations, CDC and Preventive Services Task Force for HIV screening, um, the age cutoff of 64, 65 in those, does that make sense? And what do you think about age limits on <laughs> HIV screening? Yeah. So, so, I mean, especially when you look at the sort of um, dem demography of what's going on with HIV and aging, to me, the idea of having a cutoff of 65 makes absolutely Sense. And in fact, in most instances, age-based cutoffs are probably less helpful than cutoffs that are based on um, functional status and prognosis. And so, uh, you know, the, of course, the preventive health, um, the, the preventive health services uh, task force almost always um, are the least, the last people to jump on board for any kind of recommendation. <laughs> so I'm not surprised by by that. I think I was a little, am surprised that the CDC hasn't um, come on board. But I do think right now it, uh, it makes a lot of sense for really the, everybody to be given the opportunity to experience and receive the screening. I, I think uh, with that we'll stop the questions. We have about a minute left, but um, thank uh, Christine for a great first talk. <laughs>